Welcome to the Founders Podcast. Whose bright idea was this anyway? I'm Andrew Peyton Smith, founder and CEO of Jizoodle. Welcome to episode six of the Founders Podcast, Whose Bright Idea Was This Anyway? And today we have another amazing guest, Brad Twynham. Welcome, Brad, to the podcast. Thank you very much. It's great to be here. Excellent. Now, just give you a little bit of background about Brad. Brad is a game changer, is a disruptor, an entrepreneur. And it's fair to say um, Brad is one of a kind. Driven by his early days when he would question everything in life, why the status quo was status quo, and questioning better ways of doing things. Brad is also a regional incubator facilitator, working for the Department of Innovation and Science, as well as holding down a number of company directorships within private healthcare and education. So welcome, Brad. We've got a very distinguished guest with us today. Um, Tell me a little bit more about What's driven you from your early days and not accepting the status quo in life? Yeah, I really think it was just part of my temperament. I don't think there's any magic formula or environmental thing. I think I was just always naturally curious. And it's something that I developed. I used to love going out in nature. Mm -hmm. I used to love sitting back and just watching things, whether it's leaves fall down from the trees and asking, why does that happen? Okay. You know, and then going and and learning about it and researching it and finding out the answers. I was just naturally a self-starter and just naturally very curious about Mm. about how things work and particularly nature. Yeah. Okay. Curiosity seems to be a really big, big theme in in a lot of startups and how a lot of startups seem to get their ideas in the first place. I see in some of the best startups I work with, um, curiosity is an absolutely key ingredient to success. Yeah, look, I mean, uh, being naturally curious is one of the key characteristics of someone who has a high level of adaptability. Mm. And if you look at a lot of the research that's coming out now, adaptability is really a big determinant of success for Mm. entrepreneurs and how adaptable they are. So you'll find generally most entrepreneurs are very just naturally curious, but it's also something that can be developed as well. Yeah, But yeah, I mean, I think it's people who are naturally curious tend to move in an entrepreneurial direction very naturally. Absolutely. What excites you about innovation in Australia and particularly in regional Australia? We're here on the Central Coast today. You're a very big player within regional innovation. What excites you about innovation, especially in the regions? I've always had this view that we know less about the world than what we actually know. There's more about the world that we don't know we don't know. Yeah. than what we actually know. We know a thin sliver. And, and even the stuff that we do know, there's no truth to it. If you look at medicine, for example, what we believed was a cure 50 years ago, we know is actually harmful to us today. Mm. And so as innovation comes around, it breaks the rules. It mm. breaks the traditions. It, it completely defies logic and truths that we've held for a long, long time. Mm. And so I believe as, as I guess, for the human race to constantly evolve and to constantly develop, it's all about innovation. It's what we do. It's, and it's what we do naturally. I mean, mm. if you just watch a child. Children are inherently innovative. It's, it's what we are born to do. Mm. It's just unfortunately due to systems of industrialization that we've built up in the last 300 years and an education system that supports that industrialization that we've tended to sort of train people to be machines rather mm. than creative and, and innovative. Yeah, that's a really important point. How, 
How can education change to support innovation in Australia, would you say? Well, I think the first thing education needs to do is realise that training people to do the job of machines, that's over. It's done. In the next 10 years, it's like seriously done. Mm. And so the first thing is a realisation of that. (laughs) Um, I don't think the penny has really dropped yet. I think if you look at I chair the board of a school, so mm. I understand where the bureaucracy in education sits at the moment. Yeah. And it's still very much, I guess, a little cynical about where innovation's going and, and where the future's going and, and still sees a need to really develop IQ yeah. as opposed to EQ or AQ yeah. <laughs> um, as the key skills. And because effectively every system and the social structures of school and all of that is set up to create factory workers and, mm. and it hasn't changed in 300 years. So, so schools really need to, you know, the penny needs to drop for the bureaucracy first. Mm. And then once that happens, I think it's going to take a long time for the inertia to turn. Yeah. One thing I will say, though, is if you look at some of the more innovative schools, such as the Montessori School, which is the school that I've become part of here yeah. on the Central Coast, is a lot of the structures and social structures and and learning structures within that particular pedagogy is now starting to creep into public schools even as innovative future-thinking public schools. Mm. And so we're starting to see some of those more innovative that used to be considered alternative education styles now start to creep into the mainstream, but we need to see more of it. Yeah, absolutely. I think one of the things when when I was doing my master's degree, one of the things that scared the life out of me was the fact that the statistics, the technology curve is rising so steeply now that a lot of computer science undergraduates that are starting their course, that a lot of their skills will be obsolete by the time they end their course, and, yeah. that, and that's frightening. And to me, it tells me the shift has got to be made from, like you say, to from purely the, almost a technical to other areas within education. Yeah, we've democratised information. Mm. We've democratised mm. learning. You can go to Google now. I mean, I can immerse myself in economics for three months on Google. Yeah. And I could probably come out after three months of being immersed in that, probably being more qualified to predict the future than a lot of economists who are steeped mm. in tradition and processes and bureaucracy um, yeah. because of the learning systems that they've come through. Yeah. And look, that that is the way the world's going. I mean, even if you look at millennials, millennials no longer trust people with letters after their names. Mm. They just don't. Yeah. Because they know that what they're learning is outdated. Yeah. Um, and really credibility these days comes from what someone's done rather than any letters that are after their name. So proof points. Proof points, yeah. And much smaller amounts of proof points across the career. Yeah. And okay. I, by that, I do want to be clear, I don't mean to demean those yeah. people who have spent their life studying and investing a lot of their time in studying. I, I think it's a valuable mm. contribution that they make. But at the same time, we need to acknowledge that the world is shifting and it's shifting at a rapid rate. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Very exciting from my perspective, that's for sure. Okay. You've invested in a number of companies previously. So based on, and this leads as a nice segue into the next section, based on what, what you've just said, from an investment perspective, what do you look for in a potential investment, knowing the fact that letters after your name and so forth are not necessarily going to be the things that push you over the edge, if you like? It's a really good question. I invest in early stage startups, so generally in that seed funding round or even yeah. pre-seed round where I invest. And typically, I invest in people. Mm. And I look for a number of things. I look for people who show characteristics of having a high EQ. Yeah and people who have characteristics of having a high AQ. Okay. 
I believe to be successful in an environment of continuous change, those two things are more vital than anything else. Mm. Because particularly as a founder of a startup, for example, your ability to be able to take hard feedback and process that hard feedback very quickly in order to then either shift the trajectory of what you're doing, shift a behavior that you're engaged in or your business is engaged in, or pivot and move in a different direction is critical to survival. Mm. And so if you have someone or a founder who comes from a very traditional or corporate background, they may not have developed the skills to be able to do that. Yeah. And so a lot of it comes down to the personalities of the founder as opposed to any knowledge, any subject matter expertise or anything along those lines. I mean, my view is if you need to get a founder of a business more deeply entrenched in the industry that they're trying to solve problems for, you can bring in experts. Yeah. You know, they're a dime a dozen and you can pay them to be involved. Yeah. The founder's job is to be able to adapt that business ongoingly in an environment of continuous change. So, so the most important thing for me is making that assessment of the founder. The thing I tend to look for is their combination of strengths. Okay. So I use a, a strengths test, the <laughs> Gallup strength test, yep. to assess the founder's strengths. And I typically base a decision on probably the top 10 strengths of that founder right. as to whether I believe they have a high level of adaptability. Very interesting. Um, funny enough, um, previously we were talking to Ush Danak, who's probably one of the foremost commentators on emotional intelligence in Australia. And she was saying that emotional intelligence from her perspective, that there's a number of areas that are critical for founders. First of all, resilience and being able to bounce back from the knocks that founders take and so forth. But not just be able to bounce back and go in completely the same direction is to be able to bounce back, learn the lessons that have come from that, whether it's failure or whatever, and then come back in a different direction. And that's going exactly into the area you've just been talking about. Yeah, I think also the ability to be a hyper-realist. I think that's absolutely critical. One of the first questions I tend to ask an entrepreneur I intend to work with is, what's your biggest fear? Mm. Because you know if someone's spent the time to reflect on that, they understand that, there's a high probability that they're going to be realistic about their shortcomings and realistic Mm. about a lot of other things. Yeah. Whereas if you ask that question, I've never really thought about that. Yeah right? Then it's sort of like there's a level of adaptability and and a level of realism Mm. that you're not applying here. Yeah. Because one of the big determinants of success is how willing you are to push through your fears. Mm. And if you don't really know them, don't really understand them, then how can you push through them? Are there any tips that you could give founders out there for being able to become more aware of their fears? And so, Because as a founder, as you know yourself, and, and I know the day consists of a motorway, if you like, of speeding cars, a, a few potholes along the way and, and so forth. Are there, are there any tips that you can give that, that can help build that self-reflection? I guess I have one big one, mm. <laughs> and that is that we spend so much time focused on the technical aspects of mm-hmm. building a business. We spend yeah. so much time on designing our product. We spend so much time on, on those things that are technical in nature. But if you look at the journey you're on, the determinant of success or 80% of what's going to make that success is your psychology, Mm. right? It's your awareness about yourself and areas you need to grow in, what your strengths are, okay? How are you going to utilize those strengths? How are you going to support your weaknesses? How are you going to understand what your fears are and be able to push through them? 
How are you going to develop the skills to be able to take feedback and implement it very quickly, whether it's from the market or whether it's from an advisor or a person or a customer? So 80% of the journey is psychological. Mm. And so my advice to any founder is you need to invest in that. Yeah. You need to invest in developing your psychology. Mm. More importantly than developing the technical skills. Yeah, right? absolutely. So that would be my big tip. Yeah. And it's something that's understated. It's something that, that is not taught. I mean, I, I spent a lot of time in incubators. Mm. You know, and incubators do a great job at teaching the technical skills to a founder yeah. of how to get a business off the ground, how to raise capital, how to design a product, how to do all of that. They spend no time at all. Yeah teaching, here's the skills you need to develop to become resilient. Here's the skills you need to develop to become self-aware. Here's the skills you need to develop to become open-minded so you can adopt feedback quickly. Here's the skills you need to develop to become hyper-realistic about the environment you're operating in. Okay. We don't invest any time in incubators teaching founders about that. And that's, I think that is a, a huge gap that needs to be plugged. I was just about to ask that question, actually. So if that's the case, as a startup community, if you like, we've got the whole idea of incubators and even maybe accelerators wrong, potentially. I guess, is it specific to this country or is that a global phenomenon? Well, look, I mean, one of the biggest criticisms I have of the startup sector, let's call it a sector, right, is a lot of it's based on theatre, right? It it is a theatre and that's one of my biggest criticisms. Yeah. And so... There are certain elements that need to go into theatre and one of them is you don't build things for the long Mm. term. Yeah. The incubators don't have enough stake in these startups to go, hey, I'm in this for the long haul with you. I need to harden you as a founder as much as I need to help you get a product to market. Yeah. So I think that's one of the biggest problems. And when we celebrate raising capital more than acquiring a new customer, I think that's a huge problem. I think it's a massive problem. Yeah. And it all goes to the psychology of the founders, right? You get a lot of ego satisfaction out of raising a big capital raise, but Mm. it means nothing to your business. Yeah. Absolutely absolutely nothing. Absolutely. Right? Other than it allows you to go and burn through cash at a faster rate. Mm. And that's what a lot of founders do. Yeah. Whereas if we celebrated getting three customers this week as loudly as we celebrated raising $5 million, I think we'd be in a lot lot better shape. I think that's a really pertinent point. Um, One of the things that certainly when, when I've reflected on my own journey are the days where, yep, we're going, we're going for the customers, this, we're going for the customers, oh, but I've got to keep an eye on the, the finances, I've got to go for the capital raise, oh, but hold on a minute, I've got to be doing this. When, and all of a sudden, the whole lot can become, and I guess for, especially for single founders, can become very jumbled up in the minds of a lot of people. Yeah, yeah. I think the first question you need to ask is, why am I raising capital in mm. the first place? Yeah. I look at a lot of pitches and one of the first questions I ask is, what do you actually want to use the money for? Yeah. And I'm amazed at how many founders can't even give me an answer to that. Really? They haven't thought it through. Haven't thought it through. And so they make it up and then you look at their projections yeah. and their projected P&Ls and their balance sheets and you go, I don't see how what you're telling me is reflected here. Yeah. yeah. So there's a big hole. There's a gap here. There's an incongruence, mm. right? So that will scuttle a deal straight away. But yeah. I would say probably 60% of the pitches I see haven't thought that through. Really? Despite proliferation of accelerators and incubators and learning at lunchtime and so forth, yeah. that's still not happening? That's right. Okay. That's so, right. So really that's probably only down to the founders themselves to actually improve upon that skill set potentially. Look, I mean, I think any education course will only get you so far. Yeah. Right? And incubators 
Here's another really interesting thing with incubators and a lot of the curriculums I see in incubators is they will teach you the fundamentals of raising capital, but they won't teach you the strategy behind it, mm. right? And a fundraising strategy, right, and understanding to get from where I am today to my desired outcome. Now, your yeah. desired outcome could be an IPO. Yeah. Your desired outcome could be a trade sale. Your desired outcome could be a lifestyle yeah. business that you're keeping for 20-plus years, right? What's the strategy to get me from A to B? Yeah. Why do I need to raise four capital rounds? And if mm. I do, what are the consequences each time I do that? Yeah. And if I miss my numbers between each of those raises, what's the impact it has yeah. on people within my company who I want to give stock options to, me as a founder? And I've seen some real stories where at the end of the day, because a founder hasn't thought that through, yeah. the business will do a tremendous exit and they'll get pittance yeah. for all their hard work. Oh, that's they've criminal. given it all to the, the VCs because each time they had to do a down round, yeah. which has just diluted the founder's equity significantly. I was speaking with um, Gordon Whitehead on this podcast a couple of episodes ago, and he stressed, and through subsequent discussions with him, he discussed the importance of alternate funding sources, so not necessarily the VC route and so forth, but also start looking at strategic funders such as people within your supply chain or even customers potentially. Uh, are you an advocate of, of that, route? I'm a big <laughs> advocate that your customer is your greatest source of capital. Mm. If I look, go back through my three startups, I've had customers who I've sold enterprise deals to to the tune of $10 million. Mm. That's an entire funding round. Yeah. And my equity dilution is zero. Yeah, Absolutely. It's a mindset shift, yeah. right? But once you start viewing your customers as your biggest source of capital, you start doing anything for them. Mm. You start going, how do I really make your experience top-notch? How do I keep upselling value? How do I create value for you that's going to blow your mind? Yeah. And so I can go and ask for a $10 million check yeah. to do a deal with me, put you on my product council, and then you help me go and build the product. Mm. I mean, that's the nirvana for any entrepreneur. Yeah. And I'd much rather do that than go and raise capital from a VC or an angel investor or any of those types of organisations. Absolutely. And that would completely cure the whole paradigm, if you like, of need customers but need funding. Yeah. Because you're actually moving in one single direction then. Yeah. I mean, I did one deal with a customer in my last startup. It was about a $15 million enterprise license deal. And the way we got that deal across the line was giving them warrants in the company, mm. right? Yeah. Which then, if we were successful, which they were going to help us become successful, it would mean a significant discount on that $15 million price that they yeah. put up. The net of that for the customer is that they ended up paying about $6 million because of what they got back when we sold the company. Perfect. Win-win. Right? Win-win. Win-win for the board of yeah. their company. Win-win for them. Win-win yeah. for us. Yeah. And we got great feedback on the product. It allowed us to enter a new market. So there's lots of interesting things you can do. Now, you need to keep those things above board. Yeah, right? You can't of do course. backroom deals. Right? Yeah. But, but that was an example of a deal that was all completely above board. Mm. Their board knew they were taking warrants in our company. Yeah. Right. There was a trade-off to that. There's a business case done. It was signed off at the board level and vice versa on our side. Yeah. yeah. That's fascinating. Absolutely fascinating. I love that form of financing. Absolutely. Um, we talked about education potentially being one of the biggest barriers to innovation. What improvements would you make to improve innovation in, in, in Australia and regional uh, Australia? What could we do, for instance, on the Central Coast better? Well, I think on the Central Coast, 
we need to realise that the world is changing. (laughs) I I don't know, for some reason on the Central Coast, I moved here five years ago, and for some reason here on the Central Coast, we tend to feel like we're in this bubble. Mm. It'll be okay. It's not going to be okay. (laughs) Right now. (laughs) Okay. So I think that's the first thing we need to realise. And then we need to start building our own ecosystem here. Mm. It's very fragmented at the moment. There's entrepreneurs doing stuff. Yeah. There's a couple of innovation projects that are going on right now and in their infancy. So we are starting to get the message and we are starting to do things. I can't mm. talk about those for confidentiality yeah, reasons. Of course. But I do think that we will successfully over time build a tech ecosystem. Yeah. One of the things I'm doing is I've set up a Coda Dojo. Mm-hmm. Um, that I run out of my office here. Okay. And we have kids coming in and we're teaching them how to code from basically year six and developing them through that way. So, and part of that is building that innovation ecosystem at a grassroots level. Mm. I think there are some cultural challenges here on the coast, Yeah, but they're not insurmountable. I think we are well behind Newcastle in terms of that. Although I think Newcastle has its own problems. Mm. And I think when Newcastle started its, its ecosystem, there's a huge amount of pent up demand. Yeah. And we're now starting to see in the Newcastle ecosystem that demand starting to wane. Yeah. Because they haven't successfully gone and created more demand at the grassroots level. Okay. And so yeah. I think any long-term sustainability of an innovation ecosystem, you need to be building at the grassroots level, which is the schools and the universities, running hackathons within those so they get mm-hmm. used to thinking critically, thinking yeah. outside the box coding programs within those schools that are fun as opposed to academic in nature. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and, uh, and, and so I think, I think innovation needs to occur at all levels. Yeah. I think in Australia we sort of contain innovation to academia. Yeah. So a lot of our programs in Australia are geared towards researchers and then commercialising the mm. IP that researchers do yeah. as opposed to looking at other sectors yeah. You know, building that grassroots level of innovation and that culture of innovation at a grassroots level. So from what you're saying, there, there seems to be a big gap from almost democratising innovation. That seems to be missing in a lot of the areas within Australia. I certainly know from, and I could be completely wrong here, from my perspective, certainly when I've seen local and uh, councils try to get involved in the innovation scene it almost it just feels to me like there's almost a lip service being paid to innovation and that there's no real follow-through on carrying through the great words that are said at, at various times how do you feel about that i completely agree yeah completely agree i think if you look at a geography like the central coast first question you've got to step back and ask yourself is why are we innovating mm. if we're going to create an ecosystem what are we innovating and why? Yeah. That's got to be the first question because yeah. if it's meaningless to people, then it's pointless. Yeah. Right? And the creation of jobs is not a reason to innovate. I'm sorry. Yeah. And I'm sorry to the levels of government that have built innovation programs around job creation. Innovation does not create jobs. Yeah. Right? It will in the future, but 20, 30 years in the future, mm. not within your next election cycle. So this whole notion that innovation will create jobs is yeah. completely a red herring. But that's the whole basis that various government grants are actually based on, the fact that you do this and in the future we'll have certain jobs and we'll give you a chunk of money for. And they've so, failed. So, that, is that, so that's flawed. That and whole, they've failed. Okay. Right? Yeah. Look at jobs for New South Wales, mm. right? That program's completely failed. Similar for Queensland. 
similar if you look at local government initiatives that are focused on the creation of jobs yeah. using innovation as the, the catch cry for it, they've failed, mm. right? The only programs I believe that have really succeeded have been the federal government programs around innovation and startups. And the reason being is it's not about job creation. Yeah, We're not measuring jobs. We're measuring the creation of companies that we can export. Yeah. It's a very different metric. Very different metric. Very different. Right? And for Australia to be put on the map as an ideas economy, we need to export companies, not product. Yeah, absolutely. Right? And we have some of the most innovative startups. I mean, I travel Australia immersed in startup communities all over the mm. country, and I can tell you we have some game-changing startups yeah. globally that are emerging. Yeah. But the goal is not to export their product. The goal is to export the company, yeah. make them successful in the market, which is 10 times the size of ours, and then bring them back. Yeah. Bring back that knowledge, bring back that enthusiasm. The really scary thing for me is obviously Australia has been very rich or got very rich through, like you say, digging things out of the ground and exporting them, which has served the country really well over a number of years Obviously, with the change in the various environments at the moment, there's going to come a time when that is going to slow and is not going to sustain the economy. The housing bubbles that occur at various times, again, are not going to be sustainable for the economy. So without a proper grassroots innovation ecosystem that's driven centrally, I can see massive problems coming up for for Australia in the future if the focus is not changed and changed pretty soon. Mm. If you look at economic forecasts, Australia is fairly well insulated. Mm. But compared to other countries like the US and Brazil is not very well insulated at all. So there are countries that aren't insulated. Australia is fairly well insulated. Yeah. However, I completely agree with you. And I'll take energy as an example. Yeah. Australia should be a solar superpower. Yeah. It should absolutely be a solar superpower, right? But we keep digging stuff out of the ground. Mm. And now we're calling it clean coal. I mean, come yeah. on. Like, yeah. really? Like, who are you kidding? Yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. Let's invest money into creating solar farms. We've got so much uninhabitable land, land. in this country. We could be the solar superpower mm. in the world, exporting yeah. energy all over the world, yeah. right? But we're not. And once again, I think that comes down to a mind shift. I think it comes down to a realisation that the game is over. Yeah. And I don't think our government at any level or any party within government that we have in this country at the moment mm. And I say that fearing my job, <laughs> quite gets that. Yeah. I think when they will get it, the day that we see autonomous driving cars on yeah, our streets. Absolutely. Right. And I think for a lot of people, that's when the penny and the penny mm. will drop. But my fear is that when that eventuates, it's going to be too late to turn the ship. Yeah. And so, you know, one of the things that we talked about was if I had a magic wand and I could mm. wish one thing. Yeah. My one thing that I would wish for this country would be that the government opens its eyes and wakes up sooner, all yeah. levels of government, to the unintended consequences of what's going on. Yeah, that is my least favourite phrase of all time, unintended consequences, because if you think about things a little bit harder than then there's always, they can be anticipated very yeah. often. Yeah. My least favourite phrase, mm. it's a pet, pet bug for mine, <laughs> that's for sure. <laughs> Excellent stuff. So, so really, the the whole change of that mindset—that's got to be again. It's got to become got to be done from multiple levels, and it's not just an education. This is what innovation's about. This is just a complete whole turnabout face in in where future value for the future economy has got to come from. 
Yeah, I mean, we are entering a decade of deflation. Mm, yeah. Low interest rates and getting lower and potentially going into negative interest rates. Mm. That's a reality we need to face. Yeah. yeah. And look how well that went for Japan back in the uh, 80s and 90s. They've been dealing with it for decades. Yeah. Yeah. Right? If you want to look at how to deal with it really well, Japan's probably your case study. Yeah. But we are entering a decade of deflation. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. How are we going to deal with that? How are we going to deal with that? Right? And a lot of that, technology is not the only cause, but mm. it's a massive cause of that. Yeah. Right? The democratization of technology is a huge factor in that. Yeah, absolutely. A lot of talk about artificial intelligence and machine learning and some wonderful technologies. Really, one of the first ideas for Jazoodle came about 20-odd years ago when I was building multivariate regressive models for uh, demanding uh, for forecast demand of a small business. I, I was curious, and it brings back the, the whole curiosity thing, as, as to what factors made small businesses successful, and that's both factors within their control as well as economic factors. So this is a real interest area of mine. Where do you think AI and ML could go as, as technologies? What do you think their pit, pit, pitfalls could be? There's a big subject. <laughs> I have no doubt in the next 10 to 15 years, we'll start to see the emergence of superintelligence. Okay. Like that's where AI and yep. deep learning is ultimately going. You know, machines that can think for themselves and in a lot of ways think so much better than human beings can mm-hmm. in terms of solving certain problems. So I do see that's ultimately where AI is heading. I see in the future, it was really interesting. I was at the Singularity University Summit a few weeks ago and I was yeah. running a couple of sessions there and think tanks there around the future of food. Yeah. And one of the exercises we did is 2030, right? Let's create the day of what food looks like for you in 2030. You know? Okay. And the first thing I thought is, you know what I really love? I love to wake up in the morning, tell my AI bot what I'm doing, prick my finger send mm-hmm. a blood sample via my smart connected devices to my AI machine so I can test yeah. my blood sugar level. And then it comes back and says, you need to eat this for breakfast, this for a snack, this for lunch, this for a snack, this for dinner. And you probably need to drink three liters of water today because it's going to be this temperature and with yeah. your body weight and composition, you didn't get enough yesterday. So that's how much water you need to drink. And it's all just done for me. Yeah. Right. And then I walk out and I go to my you know, hanging garden sitting in either on my veranda of my apartment or or around the outside of my home and I go and pick the vegetables and herbs that the AI bot told me to and I go and make my lunch. I mean, to me, that's the future of AI. Mm. You know, I think we can use AI to really serve humanity, to make our life that much easier and actually make it more meaningful. Mm. I hate thinking about food. (laughs) I hate thinking about what I have to have for lunch. I just, I don't have to, I don't want to have to think about that. You've just, um, this is a constant conversation that myself and my partner are always having. What are we having for dinner tonight? And that's just really resonating. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) I'd be happy for a device that much more intelligent than I am around making Mm. those types of decisions. Yeah. Right? To make them for me. I don't want to have to make those decisions. I would much rather put my energy into deep creative thought Mm. or serving people or coming up with the next big solution to a problem. Yeah. And I was thinking about what I'm going to eat or what yeah. I need to buy at the grocery store. Similarly, if you look at healthcare, wouldn't it be great if you contracted some kind of chronic disease? Mm. Your AI bot could navigate this fragmented, unstructured health system we have. Yeah. Book you specialists that you need to go to, tell you when you need to get there. Yeah. Have a car that shows up to take you there on the day, mm-hmm. drives you there, okay, gives you information of what procedure you're about to go through on the way so you know exactly what needs to be done yep. 
So when you rock up at the appointment and then it can tell you if the doctor's running 20 minutes late, would you like to stop here and have a coffee on the way because you've now got an extra 20 minutes to kill. Yep. You can walk in, go straight in, away you go. I mean, that's the promise of technology. I, mm. I, I don't like this propaganda that the media is putting out there that we're moving into this dystopian world. Yeah. I think it's a risk. I really do. I do think it is a risk that we are moving into a dystopian world. But I believe there are enough people around and enough entrepreneurs now who realise that, mm. that we won't allow it to happen. Yeah, absolutely. It's. Um, do you think there's a danger of taking away from, so you're saying that taking away some of the menial decisions and decision trees and so forth away from humanity will allow us to become more creative and to, and to actually use more creative sides of our brain and so forth in harmony with the AI? Yeah, look, absolutely. I, I think it'll be an augmentation thing. It won't be a mm. do everything for me. Yeah. All right. Look, and, and I've seen some really bad use cases for AI. I saw one the other day. There's a mob in New York that are building an AI to predict uh, marital arguments before they occur. Wow. And I'm like, that is a really bad use case for AI. That's a really it's a bad. horrible use case yeah. for AI. Absolutely. Because if you remove conflict out of any relationship, you never learn. Yeah. Right? You never learn to connect properly. You never learn to do those things. The other one was an AI to detect fake news. Okay. It's a horrible use case for AI. Horrible use case. Absolutely horrible because it removes people being responsible mm. for their own thought process. Yeah. So there are horrible cases for AI and I question why would we ever want to build that? Yeah. Right? Absolutely. So I think we need to be careful as to where we harness this technology and how we utilise it. Mm. And with every technology and with every innovation, I'm going to come back to your pet peeve word, there are unintended consequences yeah. and they need to be thought through. Mm. One of the things I'd say to entrepreneurs, because this is a real risk we have, is creating this tremendous bifurcation mm. between the have and the have-nots as we move into this world where AI becomes a dominant technology, is if you are designing a solution you can't view it through the lens of where you come from, which is mm. middle class, yes. because most entrepreneurs come from a middle class background. Yeah. You have to take the time to appreciate, think about, and understand who this technology is going to leave behind, Yeah, right? Because we have a real risk of creating a permanent underclass mm. if we do not think through that, and that would be catastrophic for humanity. And I would not want to stand 2030 and beyond looking back and saying, 2020 to 2030 was the decade that mm. we created this tremendous bifurcation and created an underclass due yeah, to technology. Absolutely. So impact on the society and the social things as well. It's, um, yeah, an absolute fascinating. And I guess the other side with AI is, I mean, there are some problems with it at the moment, is the fact that inbuilt biases can be built into the various algorithms yeah. uh, and so forth, and that we've got to be careful. Ethics is a huge thing. And, look, there is work being done at a government level both state and federal, yeah. around ethics, around AI. That work is not happening anywhere near as fast enough. There is nowhere near enough money yeah. being invested into that. Mm. And there is nowhere near enough sense of urgency to really finish that work. Yeah. Um, and so we need to really up the ante on that because I believe it's a huge thing. And, and I think one of the jobs of the future is going to be around technology ethics. Yeah. I think it's going to be a big job of the future. Chief Ethics Officer. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. No, it's a, it's a fascinating discussion. I could talk with you all day on Yeah, yeah. On so this it's one. a big, big area. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, we've just got a few minutes left. So tell us, what does your typical day look like from an innovation perspective? Oh, wow. <laughs> um, it depends if I'm on the road or not on the road. Mm. 
You've been traveling a lot recently. I've been traveling a lot recently. I've just launched a new keynote called Living in the Gap, mm-hmm. How to Develop Adaptive Leadership, which I've been taking around to all of the incubators in the country, which has been really, really well received. And my intention yeah. is to take that into corporations next year. Okay. I'm also bringing out a book on that. How do you develop adaptability? How, mm. what, are, what are the skills you need to develop to be truly adaptable in a continuous change environment? So I'll be bringing a book out around June mm. next year okay. on that topic. I'll look forward to it. And that incorporates a lot of my personal story and, and how I've developed adaptability through both good times and times of tremendous mm. public scrutiny, which I've gone yeah. through as well. So that's coming out in June. When I'm in my office, I tend to do a lot of deep thinking work, yeah. a lot of research. So one of the things I do within my thought leadership practice is I do a lot of research. And my research at the moment is very much focused on the creation of new economic models yeah. and how those new economic models can utilize exponential technology okay. to be self-governing in the future. So I've been doing a lot of research in that area. Uh, been, it's an area of research I've been interested in for about four years. That'd be fascinating. And starting to bring out some interesting work. So my second book, which mm. will probably come out in end of 2021, mid-2022, will be on some proposed future economic models okay. um, that are self-governing for beyond 2030. Yeah. So... Um, you know, so some interesting thought that I've been putting into around that. It's going to, going to be an interesting world with decentralised money, if you like, yep. coming about and how that changes the whole dynamics of economics yeah. uh, globally from a control and a management perspective, just on the one perspective. Exactly, and I'll be bringing a whole book out now. Excellent. <laughs> I am going to be sitting here counting down the days waiting for yeah, this. Yeah, so a little while to go yet. Uh, like yeah. I said, that'll be 2022, <laughs> maybe end of 2021. But like I said, there's four years of research that's gone into that yeah, and is continuing to go into it. So I spend time on that. I've got a bunch of people helping me with that project and researching that project. And then I also do my work with um, the federal government around Mm. the incubator support program. So I spend a lot of time working with incubators to refine their business models, refine their curriculums, access the funding that the federal government has to sort of build that grassroots incubation ecosystem. And that's been a tremendous program. I've been involved in that for about two and a half years. Mm-hmm. We've funded 48 projects across the country to the tune, I think at last count, it was about $18.5 million. Mm-hmm. So the federal government is investing money into this space. Mm. And in my opinion, investing it smartly. Yeah, There are people who would disagree with me on that point, <laughs> but I'd be happy to have an open debate with those people if they ever Excellent. felt like they wanted to. Yeah. And then I filter through the, you know, I probably get 12 startups sending me mm-hmm. pitch decks okay. probably every week. Yeah. So sorting through those, seeing which ones I'm interested in, seeing where I can bring value. Yeah. And then I have a number of startups that I coach and mentor. And so I have a weekly catch-up check-in with those mm-hmm. startups. And, yeah. and then also every month I have a coaching call. So my day is extremely varied. Yeah. I have a lot of different balls in the air. But that's what I like to do. Yeah. And what do you do to relax and reflect? I'm a kite surfer. So when the wind's blowing, it's sort of cancel the afternoon, I'm off. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, you're lucky the wind's not blowing today. (laughs) (laughs) Or the podcast will be out. (laughs) So, uh, you know, we we have one of the most beautiful coastlines up here on the Central Coast and I just Mm. love getting out in the surf with my kite and board and heading down the coastline. People on the Central Coast will often see me between birdie and lakes and having a good time. And then when I'm not doing that, I spend my time raising my three future Jedis. 
Okay. <laughs> three wonderful kids, six, yeah. three, and one. And, oh, and wow. uh, I just love hanging out with them and seeing what they're curious about, yeah. going with their curiosities and yeah. and exploring the world through their eyes and through their mm. lens. One of the most amazing things about having kids is seeing their curiosity. Yeah, yeah totally agree with you on that one. Okay, we've got a um, final question. If there was one piece of advice you could give to any budding entrepreneur or business owner, what would it be? Wow, that's a big one. Don't get attached to your idea. Mm. Your idea is not going to make you money. Yeah. It's not. Yeah. There are people who are coming out, you know, there are a million ideas in this world every day. Yeah. Don't get attached to your idea. Don't be afraid to share your idea because someone might steal it, mm. right? You know what? Someone will steal your idea if you have it and you don't do anything about it. Yeah. But if you're actively working on it, they're not going to, in general, people are too busy to steal your ideas. Yeah. And I think it's one of the biggest differences in culture having lived in the States for as long as I did and then coming back here is in the Silicon Beach precinct through Venice and Santa Monica, you know, you, you go out at lunchtime and you'll go for a walk and you'll see entrepreneurs and you'll sit down and, you, and you'll freely share ideas of what you're working on. There isn't this concern, oh, if I tell you, you're going to steal it, right? Mm. And it's the same in Palo Alto. Yeah. You go down Palo Alto and you see someone for lunch, hey, man, what are you working on this month? You know, and they'll tell you, and you're, oh, I'm working on this and this is a breakthrough I had and I realise that if I tweak this algorithm by this, then it produced this result, right? Because yeah. I'm not worried about someone stealing my idea. Over here, it's like, oh, I can't tell you unless you sign an NDA. It's like, mm. really? Like, come on. You think I've got time to steal your idea yeah. <laughs> and the inclination to do it? I come up with 10 new ideas myself every week. I am not. don't have the inclination to steal yours. And by the way, your idea at the end of the day means nothing. Mm. It's how well you can execute. That- It's how willing you are to get up every day for five years, 365 days a year, and go through the disappointment continuously to reach the high of success. That's what makes the difference, not the idea. Absolutely. And funny enough, that was one of the key things that I learned very early on in this journey. And I was very secretive and protective in the early days is the realization that no two startups or companies are alike. It's how you execute that creates a difference between the companies. Absolutely. Microsoft never had the best operating system, but it built the best company. Yeah, absolutely. A lot of people don't realize that. Yeah, absolutely. Microsoft have never had the best technology. They still don't. Yeah, absolutely. That was wonderful. I'm absolutely fired up after that after that discussion, Brad. Thank you very much um, for uh, for being our guest today. Any last words? Yeah, thank you. Great pleasure. And, and I'm happy to connect with anyone at any time. You can go to my website, bradtwynham.com. That's T-W-Y-N-H-A-M.com. Or you can connect with me on LinkedIn under my profile, Brad Twynham, on Facebook at BML Twynham or on Twitter at Brad or at B Twynham. So feel free to connect. I love connecting with people, love bringing value to people. And if we can help with each other and share ideas on how we can build this ecosystem better here in Australia, I'm all for it. Wonderful. Thank you very much, Brad. We'll be back with another episode uh, next week. We'll be announcing the guests very shortly. Have a great week, everyone. Thank you.